right, good evening. Let's open our Bibles to Romans chapter 4, please. We'll continue our study there. Block out some time at the end for prayer and seeking the Lord. Great to be together with God's saints on a Wednesday night. We're in chapter 4. We're going to look at verses 1 through 15, Lord willing. As Paul and Silas sang praises in the Philippian jail, an earthquake rocked that place. The cell doors sprang open. You're familiar with the story. The keeper of the prison awaking from his sleep and seeing the prison doors opened, supposing the prisoners had fled, drew his own sword and was about to kill himself. Paul called to him with a loud voice saying, Do yourself no harm, for we are all here. Then he called for a light, he ran in, and he fell down trembling before Paul and Silas. He brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? Interesting question, really, uh, in terms of, of, of you know, the fact that we don't have all the details of the story, but um, you know, with the potential for a prison break and the earthquake and the chaos and all of that, something had stirred in this man's heart about eternal life and salvation. Uh, he, he knew that there was something about Paul and Silas, these two men, not just imprisoned, but uh, in stocks. And, and you know, you ever, you ever had to be in one position for a long time? Uh, it, it's brutal. It's torture. And so these guys, you know, they're, they're in the stocks. They're chained in this deep, dank prison, singing praise songs to the Lord, and it began to stir something in this guy's heart. For, of all the things he could have asked, and of all the things that could have been on his mind, he had some idea that these men knew God, and there was something different about them, and, and he wanted that. There was a hunger in his life for that. And so he said, what must I do to be saved? And then Paul and Silas said there was only one thing he could do. Acts 16.31, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. That's a, you know, a lot of times I know, even in my life, and I know people share this with me, they think, you know, people ask questions about the Lord and uh, they don't feel like they're qualified, they don't know what the answer is, and yet, you know, here's Paul, one of the great theologians, maybe the greatest theologian probably of all time, I mean, he wrote the theology and he knew it, uh, and uh, this question, it, wasn't, it, it was the most important question anyone could ever ask. It's the question everyone is asking when they ask any question about God. They may not know it, but that, that's really the, where you're headed is, you know, to salvation. And, and so, you know, Paul and Silas, they don't really give him what you would consider a, a real theological answer. They don't spend very much time at all. It doesn't hardly take even a breath. They said, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. They go on to talk about his household as well, not meaning the automatic salvation of his household, but with faith believing that they would preach the gospel there. And so it's interesting. They don't tell him to become more righteous. They don't tell him to perform any ritual. They don't tell him to keep a set of rules. They told him to simply right there at that moment, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and they were declaring to him that he would be saved at that moment. Faith and belief are used 15 times in Romans chapter 4. It is the Bible's great chapter on salvation by grace through faith 
apart from behavior. It is in many ways the Bible's great chapter. Now, Jews listening to Paul's message would wonder how it's squared with the scriptures, and that's a, a very good question. Paul turned his attention to Abraham, the father of the Jews. And so in verse 1, he says, What then shall we say that Abraham our father has found according to the flesh? Abraham, the father of the Jewish people, he's the first Jew really called to be separate from the world by God to head a new nation that God would bless. Looking back at him, Paul asked, what did Abraham accomplish in himself by which he was saved? In other words, was it his own works of righteousness that changed his standing before God and made him savable? If it was, then Romans 4, 2, uh, you know, if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. And so Paul says, it, was it works? Was it his own righteousness? And in verse 2 he says, no, because if that's the case, then he would have something to boast about. Justification is the act of God by which he declares a believing sinner righteous on the basis of Jesus Christ's finished work on the cross. If Abraham was justified by his own works of righteousness, he'd be able to boast of having attained heaven by his own effort. Paul had already said in Romans 3.27, where is boasting? It is excluded. Not even Father Abraham can boast before God. <clears throat> Besides, the Scripture is abundantly clear how Abraham was justified. Notwithstanding that the Jews, uh, I'll read a quote in a, a little while about what they taught about Abraham. Uh, I mean, you can, you can think whatever you want about something, uh, but Paul's going to show them, hey, I'm going to read from the Hebrew Scriptures and show you how Abraham was saved. You can speculate all you want that he kept the law and that he had works of righteousness, but let me show you how he was saved. Verse 3, for what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness. Now that's a quote from Genesis 15. Abraham was justified. He was saved, we would say, by simply believing God's promise to him. Even in the Old Testament, no one, including Abraham, was ever saved by their own works of righteousness. Now, the Jewish teachers of Paul's day did teach that Abraham was justified by his works by keeping the law. One ancient passage from the rabbis says, and I quote, We find that Abraham, our father, had performed the whole law before it was given, and Abraham was perfect in all his deeds with the Lord. The rabbis then argued that Abraham kept the law perfectly even before it was given, in that he kept it by intuition or anticipation. And so they reasoned backwards from their own conclusion. They were in love with the law. They had concluded that it was by keeping the Mosaic law, the laws of Moses, that a man would be justified before God, that by your own works of righteousness, God would accept you into heaven. And then they reasoned backward that since that was true, then Abraham must have perfectly kept the law even before the law was given. He anticipated the law and kept it perfectly, and so they had this tight little system going. Here we see that Abraham's righteousness did not come from his performance of good works, but from his belief in God. It was a righteousness obtained through faith. Abraham was a Gentile pagan idolater in the land of Ur when God called him. He wasn't performing works of righteousness. He wasn't getting himself ready for salvation. 
God revealed himself to Abraham while he was yet ungodly. Abraham believed God, and then God accounted it for righteousness. Now, this word accounted can also be translated reckoned or imputed or counted. It's a banking term. It's borrowed from bookkeepers. It means to put over into your account. It means to make an entry into your ledger. If you could have seen Abraham's ledger sheet before he believed God, it would have been filled with the record of his sins. The moment Abraham believed God, his sins were put over to the ledger of Jesus Christ, and Jesus Christ's righteousness was put over into Abraham's account. Has your bank ever made a mistake and put more money into your account? That happened to us one time, and I thought, got you now, but then they just, they just took it back. Good thing I didn't spend it, right? No, I think it's a crime. But anyway, uh, so basically, Paul says, I'm going to give you an example here from the world of bookkeeping. And we all, man, that's an exciting world, isn't it? The world of bookkeeping. But it's a world we all understand because at some level we keep ledgers. And I mean, now we do it on computers, but, you know, but... Uh, we, we understand this, you know, you go to the bank and you put, give them something and, and then when you look at your balance, it's more than it was before you gave them that. And so Paul says, here's, here's what really happened. God, uh, you know, reveals himself to Abraham, makes a promise to him. Abraham believes that promise and then he puts righteousness into the account of Abraham and removes his sins. And so Jesus Christ's righteousness put into his account. Thus Abraham was saved, justified while he was yet ungodly, having no righteousness of his own to offer God. Paul offers another illustration from everyday life in verses 4 and 5. Now to him who works, the wages are not counted as grace, but as debt. The idea of grace, unmerited favor, stands opposite to works. Grace has to do with receiving freely given gifts of God, while works has to do with earning merit before God. A system of works puts God in debt to us. God owes us his favor because of our good behavior. In works thinking, God owes us salvation or blessing because of our good works. And so uh, and what Paul is saying is if you want to believe that you can be saved by works of your own righteousness, what you're saying is, you're going to go to God and say, I have done enough to earn salvation and you're obligated to give it to me because I, I have achieved it. Uh, and it's, it's proud on the outset. Just, I mean, you can hear yourself, if you hear yourself saying that, I mean, what pride, what wickedness, really. Then he says in verse 5, but to him who does not work but believes on him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is accounted for righteousness. Think of an automatic deposit of your paycheck into your bank account. If you work, you earn the money that is put into your account. But what is the work that you must do to have Jesus Christ's righteousness put into your account? Jesus answered it himself in John 6, 29. He says, this is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. He didn't say that you behave a certain way or keep this rule or that ritual or anything. He said, this is the work of God by which he will put righteousness into your account. You believe in the one whom he has sent. And so when you believe in Jesus Christ alone for salvation, God not only cancels your debt of sin, 
He also makes an automatic deposit of all heaven's resources into your account. And so God only justifies the ungodly. No one can ever first cease to be ungodly, then believe. While yet ungodly, you believe and God justifies you. Abraham clearly had no personal righteousness before he was saved. How extensive, though, is this justification? By that I mean, must you then work to achieve and maintain personal righteousness in order to become fully justified? Is this act of God where he justifies you, uh, is it partial in the sense that you have to do something now to secure it and make sure that you're really saved? Well, Paul gives you the illustration of David quoting Psalm 32, verses 6, 7, and 8. Just as David also describes the blessedness of the man to whom God imputes righteousness apart from works, blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord shall not impute sin. David, a justified man, went on to sin wickedly. He committed adultery. He committed murder. He was a hypocrite. Yet he was saved. At one point, he cried out to God saying, Restore unto me, what? The joy of thy salvation. He doesn't say, Lord, restore unto me salvation. I've lost my salvation by my great sinning. He says, no, I've lost the joy of your salvation. He'd lost his joy, not his justification. Warren Wiersbe says, and I quote, once we are justified, our record contains Christ's perfect righteousness and can never again contain our sins. Christians do sin, and these sins need to be forgiven if we are to have fellowship with God, but these sins are not held against us. God does keep a record of our works so that he might reward us when Jesus comes, but he is not keeping a record of our sins. It's Justification is extensive. It's a, a once-for-all declaration by God that you are righteous before him. Now, this is the blessedness that is mentioned by both David and Paul, that lawless deeds are forgiven, sins are covered, and the Lord shall not impute sin. So I, I believe what Paul is saying is once you have God's imputed righteousness, he doesn't then withdraw that and, and re-impute your sin. There isn't a, a going back and forth all the time based on my behavior. And this, this is a pretty amazing thing when you think about it. We're not saying people don't sin. We're not saying Christians don't sin. We're saying that once God imputes righteousness to your account, you are declared righteous. You may become like David, an adulterer, a murderer, a hypocrite. But David said, well, God didn't impute sin to me. David needed to be forgiven. He wrote that his bones were all dry, like wax. He had no real joy or relationship with the Lord. Uh, but he understood that God had justified him and was not imputing sin against him. Now, understand what I'm saying. I'm only saying what the Bible says, that you're fully justified the moment you believe in Jesus Christ. You don't start on a path towards justification towards the possibility of justification if you can achieve and maintain a certain standard of righteousness. If that were the case, David would not be in heaven today. If that were the case, no one would ever be in heaven, for we all continue to sin. The Bible says if you say you have no sin, what are you? You're a liar. 
and then you've sinned twice. So you have sin and then you have the sin of lying on top of that. David was fully justified the moment he believed God. You are fully justified the moment you believe God. You cannot see into the courtroom of heaven to see who, or maybe it's whom, God has justified. You only see the results in the behavior of men on earth. Justification in heaven is proved by purity on the earth. What you are in Jesus Christ will be seen in what you are before men. In other words, they're in the life of a justified individual who is born again by the Spirit of God, you would expect there to be a radical change and a whole new principle of living. Habitual sinners prove that they've never been justified. Saints still sin, but when they do, they remain saints and can thank God for the blessedness that their lawless deeds are forgiven, their sins are covered, and the Lord shall not impute sin. In justification, God doesn't declare you godly. He declares you righteous. He accepts you because you stand in his imputed righteousness. Once you're justified, God works in you to produce godliness day by day. Our justification is not God making us perfect, but counting us as perfect. After we are counted righteous, then God begins making us righteous. It culminates in our resurrection. One author said it this way. He said, justification is the act of God by which God gets us out of sin legally. Sanctification is the process by which gets sin out of us actually. And so you're justified, you're saved. God declares you righteous. You have a new standing with God. He's imputed that to your account. It cannot be taken away. And then he begins to work on you in a practical way so that the sin that you have been set free from no longer has dominion over you. And you see this in the life of Abraham. He was justified by faith, we said in Genesis 15. In the New Testament book of James, you read that Abraham was justified by his works. It's not a contradiction. Thirty years after he was justified by faith, his justification was vindicated by his works when he started to sacrifice Isaac. It was the outward demonstration he had been truly justified by faith. And so we see that uh, in Genesis 15, he's justified by faith. He believes God. Paul says that's when Abraham was saved. James comes along and he says, yes, but faith without works is dead. In other words, there will be a transformation of behavior in the life of someone who is justified. And so when you get to Genesis 22, 30 years after Abraham was justified, and God says, I want you to sacrifice your only son, Isaac, Abraham gets up early, saddles up his donkey, throws the wood on and says, hey, let's go, and gets all the way to where he's bringing the knife down. He's vindicated. It's obvious that he's a saved man. And, and later on, you read of him that he accounted that God would raise Isaac from the dead. He had no idea what was going to take place. In his mind, Isaac was already dead. God had told him to kill him, to sacrifice him. But he believed that God would then have to raise him from the dead. That's how much his belief had grown. And so it's, it's, it's all part of what God is doing in our lives. Justification is not attained or maintained by personal righteousness. 
neither is attained or maintained by the performance of any outward rite or ritual. The great rite of God's sanctioned religion was circumcision, the cutting away of the foreskin. In verses 9 through 12, you see that Abraham was already justified more than a decade before circumcision was required. Circumcision is not necessary for salvation, and we would uh, extrapolate from that that nor can any other rite or ritual save you. And so in verse 9, does this blessedness then come upon the circumcised only or upon the uncircumcised also? For we say that faith was accounted to Abraham for righteousness. How then was it accounted while he was circumcised or uncircumcised? Not while he was circumcised, but while uncircumcised. You know, sometimes the arguments in the Bible are almost too simple. We want to make them more complicated. All Paul is saying is if Abraham was already justified by faith prior to circumcision some 14 years later, then no rite or ritual could be necessary for salvation, only believing. And so if you're, if you're really thinking this through just from an independent point of view, even as a Jew, you think, okay, wait a minute, we're telling people you have to be circumcised in order to be really saved, but we don't really believe that of Abraham. We know that Abraham was saved in Genesis 15, and he wasn't circumcised for another 14 years. What's all that about if circumcision is so important for salvation? And so Paul just says, yeah, Guys, Abraham wasn't circumcised when God declared him righteous, so you're way off base with your teachings of rituals. Verse 11, he received the sign of circumcision, a seal of the righteousness of the faith which he had while still uncircumcised, that he might be the father of all those who believe, though they are uncircumcised, that the righteousness might be imputed to them also. Circumcision was an outward sign to demonstrate the inward grace of salvation that had already occurred, it was a sign of faith, not a substitute for it. And what Paul seems to be saying here in verse 11 is that God gave circumcision as a special sign for the nation of Israel as a tool of separation. It was one of the many ways they were to remain separate from the nations around them, diet and dress and all these other things as well, so that they would have a testimony that they belonged to God. But he said God had built in to this equation, the fact that Abraham was going to be saved while yet uncircumcised so that it would be clear that salvation was for everyone, circumcised Jew or uncircumcised Gentile, that circumcision was only about uh, identifying you as a Jew, as a separated individual. Uh, it had nothing to do with really being saved. And Paul obviously carries this over into the New Testament where he uh, you know, refuses to allow Titus to be circumcised. He says, yeah, there's no way I'm going to circumcise Titus because he's a Gentile. He's from a Gentile family. He doesn't need circumcision to, you know, now Timothy, now that's a different story because, you know, he has a Jewish background and we just aren't going to be able to go into a synagogue with an uncircumcised Jew. That's just not going to happen. And so, you know, today the equivalent, there's equivalents of it today and less painful equivalents in the sense of, of, you know, sometimes when we're asked to go overseas, we're, we're told you, you have to shave your beard or your mustache. You can't, you know, this culture uh, frowns on that. Or, you, you know, if you're a woman, you have to wear certain clothing or things like that. Uh, and, and so Paul, Paul was very clear on this. He says, you want to be circumcised? That's a sign of the Mosaic Covenant. That's for the Jews. That's fine. It was, but, you know, Abraham was already saved before he was circumcised so that he could uh, be the example of salvation to all mankind, not just to the Jews. 
Verse 12, the father of circumcision to those who not only are of the circumcision, but also who walk in the steps of faith, which our father Abraham had while still uncircumcised. I don't think we get the, the impact of how this would hit a Jew to think that Paul is saying, you know, Gentiles are like Abraham. Abraham was like a, an uncircumcised Gentile for a while, believing and not having circumcision. It's pretty, pretty fascinating. Even though he would go on to be the physical father of a new nation, he would also be the spiritual father of any from all nations who believe God and were justified by faith. Abraham is the Bible's example for all men everywhere from all time of salvation by grace through faith alone. God's plan of salvation includes a special place and purpose for the literal descendants of Abraham, the physical descendants, but it excludes no one. Verse 13, for the promise that he would be the heir of the world was not to Abraham or to his seed through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. Abraham was saved before the law was given. And so I understand... It's kind of clever, I guess, intellectually to go back and say, well, Abraham must have kept the law, you know, uh, before it was given, even though it wasn't given. And then you have to step back and think, yeah, that's dumb. That's stupid. He didn't keep the law. You, you can't keep something that didn't exist uh, at the time, especially not the way the Jews had parsed the law and added to the law and interpreted the law. Abraham did none of the things that they were talking about. Rules cannot save you, even if they are God's divinely sanctioned rules. You are saved apart from keeping rules through the imputed righteousness of faith. Obedience to the principles and precepts of the Old Testament, given much later to Moses, had to do with the behavior of an already redeemed people. Its goal wasn't to save them, but so that they might secure for themselves health, happiness, and practical holiness. It had to do with their approach to God, their relationship with God. Just so the principles and precepts of the New Testament do not add to your salvation, obedience to them secures for you peace and prosperity and power. Verse 14, for if those who are of the law are heirs, faith is made void and the promise made of no effect because the law brings about wrath. For where there is no law, there is no transgression. If you could inherit eternal life by keeping God's rules, eternal life would not be a promise, and therefore you could never be certain of it, because you would never know if you had perfectly kept God's rules. And you see this with the Jews. You see it in every religion, obviously, but the Jews, they had God's law, but they couldn't quite get exactly how it should be kept. And so they kept adding to it their own interpretations. They wanted to keep the Sabbath. And then they would sit down in their little groups and say, what does that mean? How do we keep the Sabbath? Well, you know, we probably shouldn't irrigate on the Sabbath because that would be work. Okay? So somebody comes along, and, and this is an actual rule, he comes along and he spits. And depending on what his loogie does on the ground, it's considered work or not. If it rolls, it's considered irrigating. And he's broken the Sabbath. He needs to give sacrifice. And so, so the Jews, they, they were saying, yeah, we're saved by the keeping of the law. And then they had all these crazy additions that no one could really keep. And so the truth is, apart from just the, the flat-out hypocrisy of their pride, thinking that they were saved, 
no one ever really could honestly know if they were saved if it's a matter of behavior because there's always some nuance of interpretation you know that it, they couldn't understand marriage and divorce there were two schools of thought on that they asked Jesus what do you think about divorce and what Moses did and you know the, and they couldn't agree on anything and so if salvation is by keeping the law then it's not a promise that you're saved and, and you can never know if you're saved and this is the this is a, one of the essential problems that Martin Luther and the other reformers understood when they read the book of Romans and they said oh yeah I can know that I'm saved right now God's gonna justify me on the basis of believing in him as a promise I don't need to keep and I can't keep the law Catholics today Roman those who follow the Roman Catholic doctrine they don't know if they're saved in fact most of them will tell you well to be honest most of them believe they will be saved because they were Catholics and they did certain Catholic things and rituals and all. but an honest Roman Catholic will tell you that they're gonna spend time in a place that doesn't exist purgatory and work off the last of their sin because they at least understand that it takes a lot of pride to say that you have earned salvation and that at the moment of death God is going to accept you because you've earned it and so most honest ones will say I'm gonna fall short but thank goodness I can suffer at the end and be truly saved." and so this idea that you're saved by keeping rules and regulations it cancels the promise of God puts all the burden on you and you and I are always gonna fall short it's like the old illustrations we used to use about swimming to Hawaii from Newport Beach almost anybody here will get farther than me because I don't I won't make it past the waves before I you know poop out and drown you might get as far as Catalina which I'm not even sure if that's in the same direction as Hawaii but <laughs> you might see it off in the distance and think I'm gonna make a pit stop I'll make my first pit stop at Hawaii and then I'll head to you know the next nearest island you're gonna drown and die and be shark bait is what's gonna happen you're not gonna make it and so we can't get there by the law transgression he mentions here in verse 15 is the violation of a known law Paul did not say that where there is no law there is no sin he simply pointed out that it becomes known as a transgression when there is a law forbidding it it's wrong it's a sin we would say in this context it's wrong for us to speed through a school zone it becomes a transgression when a sign goes up limiting your speed when they when they post it and and they make these speed limit laws uh, and so it's it's always been wrong but now they have something against you obeying the law cannot save you from the penalty of sin it only serves to reveal your guilt if you are to be saved God must remove the penalty of sin and this he can only do by declaring you righteous on the basis of believing what Jesus has accomplished on the cross it is the only way it's the only way and so justification it's the act of God which saves us from the past penalty of sin sanctification is the process in which we cooperate with God that is saving us from the present power of sin 
It's our maturing in Christ. It's our growing in the Lord. It's our understanding our new position in Christ and appropriating it so that we don't become sinless, but we sin less and less. Glorification is the future act of God that will save us from the very presence of sin forever. And so that's our understanding of salvation. God justifies you the moment you believe. He puts his righteousness into your account and you have a new position with God. Then he works on us throughout our lifetime to make that position our practice. And that will continue until we either by death or through the rapture go to be with the Lord, have our glorified bodies no longer subject to even the presence of sin and enjoy eternity. Amen? Amen. Praise the Lord.